Hi there. This is City Booking Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimion, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine, HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Welcome to City Booking Company. This is Jeff Grimion, and we are about to get into part two of our fascinating interview with Chef Johnny Rhodes. Texas Monthly described Johnny Rhodes this way about a year ago, talked about uh, how the Houston Chronicle named his restaurant one of the best new restaurants in Houston, how Texas Monthly placed Indigo on its list of the top 10 new restaurants in the state, how not long after that, Eater Houston honored Rhodes as its Chef of the Year and the James Beard Foundation named Rhodes a semifinalist for its annual Rising Star Chef of the Year Award. Then came GQ, Food & Wine, and Eater's national website, each of which anointed Indigo as one of the best new restaurants in America. And then in August of 2019, Time Magazine elevated Indigo to its loftiest honor yet, declaring the restaurant to be one of the 100, quote, greatest places in the world. And he's achieved all this by doing something really special. He uses his cooking and his outreach to the community through his restaurant to talk about the history of the African-American community and the struggles, uh, which are so real and which have, have been on the minds of so many of us uh, for so long. He has a very special perspective on all of that. And we're going to get back into that conversation really soon. But before we do, Welcome back to our guest co-host today, Kate McLean, a chef in her own right, also a journalist and a podcaster and a great friend of the podcast. Always love having her here. Kate, you did something really interesting. Listeners won't hear about this for a month or so. We tape a little bit in advance. But as it happens, as we see it here today, you're about a couple of hours into being a vaccinated person. Yes. How do you feel about this and how do you think your life will change? Do what, I... are you, what are you looking forward to being able to do in the upcoming weeks that maybe you haven't done in a year? Honestly, I want to get bottle service at the club. <laughs> I'm so serious. I'm, I'm so ready to uh, get in that environment once more and not be worried about, you know, the thing out there. But yes, I just got vaccinated and it was at, at Memorial Hermann. Thank you so much for those hard workers and all of them out there. It was pretty painless. And then I, I hung out in the room and enjoyed a complimentary Ozarka water bottle and they watched me not too closely, but they did watch me. And because the uh, fear is that you could have some bad reaction. And so, yes. Yeah. I think the second time it's supposed to be worse or I don't know, more severe, but I feel good, Jeff. I might take a nap later, but I feel good. Well, I'm glad you have had the vaccine. I have not had the vaccine, but it's only because I haven't prioritized searching for it. I think at this point, everyone I know who really wanted to get vaccinated at any age at this point, who's really taken it seriously and wanted to get in line, has managed to get vaccinated. So I, I believe that things are going to wind up changing before too long. I, I don't know how to feel about it, but I feel and, – and it'll be interesting when we air this podcast. Uh, we'll be about a month out from where we are now to see how people are feeling. But so many people, and not just the elderly, like people at all, of all ages. I mean, Kate, you're pretty far yeah. from elderly, and there you are. So – I did. Uh, I was born for with a little bit weaker lungs. And so I did get into that 1B. But what I thought was so cool is there are people out there like 
in your circuit, your friends that are are encouraging other their friends to go. I think I had three people in my circuit that was like, they were like, just give me your information. I'll sign you up. I'll sign you up. I'll get you in. I'll get you in. And like, I thought that was very cool. Well, I hope that critical mass is building and things begin to change. I There's a lot of things I'm looking forward to, but I'm, I think I'm mostly looking forward to not feeling like I have to wear a mask. I know that's not PC and we're supposed to be cool with wearing masks, but I hate it. I, I haven't gotten to the point yet where I can avoid my glasses fogging up. And oh, I feel yeah. like the biggest nerd walking into HEB with a mask on and fogged up glasses – and I'm just – I find it gross. The loops around the ears of the mask get tangled up in my glasses and I'm, it's I'm, – I'm just ready for all this to be behind You're us. You're ready. Yeah. I'm optimistic. I know there's a lot of politics around it and different people have different views about what the governor has said recently about opening the state back up and so forth. But my personal feeling, politics aside, is I am ready for normal. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you. Do you have like a dress mask? I don't. I bought like a nice, I, nice nope, one. Nope. I bought a, a big box of the disposable ones like, you know, six months ago. And yeah. I just fish a new one out of there. Yeah. 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 Do, do you have fancy dress masks? I don't. Yeah. As a favor for the ballet ball home edition, they did, they did it all virtual. And uh, among the, the gifts and favors that they sent for everyone for home delivery who was participating were some sequined masks. Cool. And I thought that might – maybe before this is all over, I'll put on a sequin mask and go to HEB just for the heck of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am glad that uh, uh, hopefully we're getting close to turning the corner on all of that. And I'm also glad to continue talking with Johnny Rhodes, which we will do in just a moment after a break to hear from a very valued sponsor. Come right back. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again, never hassle with providers, only deal with real simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CITYBOOK, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. So this is sort of what Indigo has become. It's widely known now all over the country in culinary circles. But getting there, getting from these thoughts in your head, I'm going to do this kind of restaurant that's going to be special in this way. That wasn't easy, was it? Getting Indigo open was really painful. And various times you and your wife said, what the hell are we doing? Well, I would say getting there, getting Indigo open was definitely a challenge. It took a lot 
to to be able to do it. We didn't uh, we didn't have any investors. There wasn't you know didn't have any previous sous chef or executive chef experience. Just had a concept that uh, that I truly believed in and that I really wanted to uh, to showcase to the world. I can't tell you how many people I had that told me like, "Hey guy, this isn't gonna work. <laughs> Eight seats, thirteen seats, it's not gonna work." Uh, from previous employers to you know close fam family and friends. Uh, but I, I truly did believe in it. I really uh, wanted to come out and tell the stories of the dishes. Um, I had spent countless of years, like really researching and uh, even standing in the mirror, imagining how I would talk to people and say it. Because uh, as an introvert, it's which you do every night, right, or every wow. night that you're cooking, right? Well, not well now. I, I don't I don't go out and talk to people as much as I used to. The introvertness is just taking over. It's it's difficult to uh, to toggle in between cooking over live fire where it's a very intense and focused situation to now you're out talking to guests and you're always wondering in the back of your mind, did I move that last coal over? Is anything is anything <laughs> cooking over it? Yeah. Uh, so those things are things that give me deep anxiety when, when talking to people about the dishes. So sometimes I do speak a little fast when I'm out there. But that was, for example, the story you just told about the Nigerian culture and, and the history of the yams. Right. That well, was, at least initially, that was part of the experience at Indigo. Oh, certainly, certainly. And then also in that, we talk about Frederick Douglass, because you talk about the history before our arrival in America and the descendants of Igbo. But then you talk about here, which is where the candy yam comes from, right? Sweet potatoes come from uh, from West Africa, but the candy yam comes from the south southern parts of the United States, uh, where you had slave, uh, enslaved blacks, essentially, preserving and roasting sweet potatoes and hiding them as a form of combating food apartheid. Uh, Slaveholders would take food away from people as a form of controlling them. So to keep that from happening, you just hide your food. You preserve it so it can last longer, and then you hide it. And I wanted us to get a full spectrum of that narrative and of that picture. One, we come from a community that takes care of each other via agriculture. Two, we always make sure that we're fed even in the toughest of times. Which also bleeds into... The other part of your mission with Indigo and in other things that you've done and are doing, which is what you just referenced, food apartheid. What is food apartheid? So a lot of times you hear the term food desert. Yeah. But when you think of a desert, you know, nothing can grow there because of the habitat naturally, right? The sand, et cetera. But when you say that about a community being a food desert, you're saying that people in that community cannot habitat food, quality food. Food apartheid speaks to there being a system in place to keep quality food out of communities. And a lot of things can be considered food, but I want to make sure I put an emphasis on quality food because we can feed dogs slush, but we're not going to feed humans that and call it food. And I think that's what food apartheid is, is that it is an infrastructure in place to keep quality food out of communities of poverty and communities of color in particular. It's fast food restaurants just popping up. It's very dense fast food restaurant areas and grocery stores, you know, that offer fruits and vegetables. They're all on the outskirts. They're not in the middle. You know, it's convenience stores. It's Right. I mean, and a big part of that as well is uh, oftentimes, especially in Houston, Houston has like I think the second highest car, car break-ins in the country or the highest car mm-hmm. break-ins in the country. As a teenager that was, you know, into those type of things, you know, these kids aren't going and spending this money on luxurious items. They're going in and funneling that money right back to McDonald's, to Taco Bell, to Burger King. 
so these fast food restaurants are accessories to the crime because it'd be different if you were going out and spending that money on, you know, laptops and you know other luxurious items, but these items are being spent on food, right? Imagine them cutting off the hand of a thief in today's world. That's essentially what we're doing. You're cutting the hand off of a thief of a child who's stealing food, not stealing for, once again, luxurious or items like such, but literally to feed themselves. Petty crimes like such are done typically to feed themselves or to sustain themselves. And uh, coming from communities that have done those things and experienced those things and have lived those things for so long, I think that it's, uh, it's only right to, to shed a light on the fact that people aren't doing these things because they want to, but because they feel as if they absolutely have to. And I think when we look at the full spectrum of food apartheid and uh, agricultural oppression, we have to look at crime and some of the other things that food causes us to do. And I think that you've made the point that food apartheid is part of the larger story being told in our country right now about what's known as systemic racism. You think this is a systemic issue, don't you? I don't think it is. It's all in front of us. Um, it's a systemic issue, and it's it's not just a, a race issue. It is a definitely across racial and class lines. Um, anybody in, and I don't know if anybody, if everybody in this room has land or owns acres. If you don't have land or you don't have acres and you're in this room and you make 100000 200000 or million dollars a year and you can't sustain your own diet, you are in this too, right? It's not, um, that. that's the thing about it is, is I'm speaking at it from my perspective and from mm-hmm. the perspective of my community, but in all actuality, we're all going through it, every single one of us. And when I say that, I say that because it's, it's uh, I want people to be able to view it from my perspective. And the only way you can view it from my perspective is if you look at it from your own. Can you grow your own food? The power was just out here for a while. How did you fare? You fared like the rest of us. That means we have something in common. And I want to focus on that, what we have in common, which is the lack of access to high-quality food at all times. And how, in your own words, was Indigo meant to address that? How does a great little restaurant that puts out great food and tells these colorful histor- history, historical stories, how does that affect the problem? If I'm being 100% honest, it was only to make people aware of what was coming from, uh, from myself. Um, as much as I talked about it to the guests, um, the words just don't resonate with people enough to get out there and go do it right now. Like right now, people would have great dinners and great moments at our restaurant, birthdays, weddings, breakups, you name it. But the idea was it was for it to not just enjoy the great food, but to take the words in which I'm saying and using. And when you wake up the next morning or when you get home that night, to apply it, right, to actually apply it. And um, that's something that has kind of made me fall out of love with the concept is, is I don't want to be in a Jay Leno or Arsenio Hall. Uh, I want action for us to actually take action. And when people fall in love with words and not action, it's a problem. So I, I'd rather lead by action than just continue to lead by words. Um, so it's a nece- indigo closing is a necessary sacrifice uh, to be able to lead by action by showing that, hey, we're willing to give up the restaurant to showcase that everybody needs to be growing food. So, yeah. Listeners may not be aware that you made the tough call and you had a really moving statement about it when you did. Talk about that decision because it was, it took a lot out of you to get Indigo off the ground. 
and now you've chosen to end it, close and to go this summer, and then you're going to be doing more directly to impact food apartheid. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it was definitely a difficult decision. Um, it's like my baby. It's like my first kid. Um, I built it from the ground up, everything in there, uh, the construction work, the handiwork, all those things, all the light fixtures. It's just kind of uh, it's intense to go back and look at it and see what Indigo was to what it is today. Not even thinking about the accolades. Those things are few and far in between, but think about the amount of people in our community that saw us do this. This was an abandoned building in our community for 30 years. Wow. That's basically my, well, not basically, that is my entire life. And it's hard to make a restaurant out of an abandoned building you learned. It's hard hard to make a restaurant out of anything. Uh, And for us to, you know, be able to do it in that space and do it uh, the way we did it, it just, it it feels really special to be able to do that. Uh, And I want people in our community to know that. Why did you you want to do it there? Why why was that location important? Well, for starters, it's all I could afford. I'm from being 100% honest with you. Being an entrepreneur does not come, uh, it doesn't come with a, a warning label for the, <laughs> for the capital that it requires. Uh, but for, for starters, it definitely, uh, it was definitely something that we could afford. Uh, it was close to home. Uh, so this means that the transport wasn't, you know, too, too terrible. And then, I, like I said, I really wanted people in our community to see, uh, what it's like to fight for your life. For me, it was, I was going to get that restaurant and open it or die trying. It, there was no other option for me. So I was using my body in every single way I could to make sure that I could get that restaurant open with zero experience in construction. That's amazing. Thank you. And what were you building? What what were you having to Oh, man. So we uh, we demolitioned the entire space. Um, so everything that was in there, there was probably rice in there as old as I it am. It had been a Chinese restaurant, right? A Chinese buffet. So yeah, there were uh, there was a whole village of food living there. <laughs> there was a village of food living there, uh, and they uh, so we had to you know clear out all of the disgusting stuff that was in there, uh, do redo the floors. Um, when I talked to investors, investors told me the amount of money that it was going to require to do this stuff, and it was extremely discouraging. I I didn't step into the building for several months because I was just so discouraged. Uh, I knew that I was never going to be able to acquire the amount of money. Investors didn't want to give me $12,000, let alone 100000 to do some of the things that they were saying. Uh, so I just, after several months of a, of a layoff, I just said in my mind that we're just going to get it open. If we can just get it open, we'll build it back up and make it look nice and things like such. If you go back and look at some of the pictures, the earlier pictures of what Indigo looked like to where it is now, it's exactly what we said it would be. Uh, we just had to give it time, and uh, it was difficult, certainly. And at one point, you you learned all about permits, and oh, God. right, and that was a huge setback, wasn't it? Oh, what was it? Yeah, they had me up a tree on that one. <laughs> yeah, they had me up a tree on that one. I, I remember being on the phone several on several different days, arguing with people on two different phones. Because sometimes they'll say, well, one person said something. I was like, well, I can't click them on the other line, but I got them on the other phone. I put the phones together. What was it particularly that they wanted you to do? Uh, I mean, so so we didn't we don't have any uh, gas in the restaurant. So we had a huge issue with uh, the old gas line being in the restaurant and having to get it removed. Was it active? Was it closed? The hood vent being serviced, uh, certificate of occupancy. I mean, this is just things I had never even heard of. Uh, so, and then finding out the cost behind all these permits, God, 
yeah, whew, I could have opened up a whole other business not paying for permits. Uh, I mean, you just learn all that stuff for the first time, and it catches you off guard. And it, it um, there's some humility that goes on in it because you think you're going to just do whatever. And there's so many different roadblocks, but experiencing those roadblocks help build up the fortitude for dealing with all the other things that you experience in business. And it's uh, it's always great uh, not adhering to adversity. Good for you. How's it been kind of transitioning into the farm? Well, tell folks about the farm and how that's become part of what you're doing now. Yeah. So uh, as I was saying before about, you know, wanting to walk the walk, not just talk it, uh, we got some land uh, in May of 2020, right after the pandemic, and started uh, the thing. I think I want to say within the first where is 30 that? days. It's about uh, north, about 90 minutes north of here in Cleveland. Um, so started working the land, getting it clear, which is a whole different beast within itself. Excuse me, clearing the land, working on it, getting it all set. Tons of burning, tons of agriculture. Tons of watching out for animals because they're a wild boar everywhere. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Did you, like, have kind of a gun or a machete around just in case? Always. Cool. Always, yeah. You can't be out in the country without a gun. So cool. There will be Could animals. Could you hunt the wild What kind of gun? Yes, you can. Yes, you certainly can. Uh, and I have a five. Well, I keep two different two different ones. I have a 5.56. Five, I have an AR. And then I also kept my uh, my uh, 6.56 on me. So it's a revolver 357. Nice. Oh, yeah, it makes it easier. Wild boys have really hard schools. That's what I hear. Oh yeah. And then do you kind of put them in a in the ground with something delicious and well, we haven't. Enjoy? So I haven't had I haven't had to to kill any yet. No wild boar came on us or ran on us uh, at any point in time. Uh, we have seen several hundreds of them, uh, but we haven't had any interactions yet. But I imagine once we get the land a little bit more clear, there'll be some uh, some Kalua pig going in the ground for yes. us at some point. And what else are you growing out there? We're growing uh, cabbages, collard greens, kale, carrots, onions. I'm hoping this summer to get uh, so much more planted from um, from different squashes to watermelons, uh, okra, peppers, all those different things. So we're hoping for a really a really good summer this year and a really uh, bountiful harvest uh, at the end of this year as well. What's your favorite piece of equipment like on the farm? Really? Oh man! So I love, I love like the skid steer. What's that? Oh man! So <laughs> is that like you're plowing? So no, a skid steer or- is like it's almost like every little boy's dream, literally, uh, and little girls. But it's like a so four wheel truck basically with a bucket on it, or you can put different attachments on it, and you can. It's basically you're in it. It's, it's almost like a robot, and it can pick stuff up, cut through things. It can do so. I mean, it, it literally has. Oh wow! So many different applications: mulching, forklift, so mulching. Yeah, you yeah. can kind of like do the line in the dirt where you put the seeds. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, what it's called, yeah. but yeah, you can definitely do that. You can um, you can cut a trench and do your seeds that way. You can do a six inch trench, eighteen inch, or a twelve or a six, twelve, eighteen, or a twenty four inch inch uh, trench as well. So all those things are different. Have different capabilities. They're super fun to drive too. Yeah, yeah. Do you need your own license? Do you nope. have? You can do it? You can do it. You How can rent it? one and go do it, too. I'm there. Kate, is this is... I just got my forklift certification, <laughs> which is why... You have I'm not like, been this excited all day. No, this is... I'm blooming. <laughs> um, so how has it... Is it just lovely transitioning from being inside a kitchen 
to being outside and feeling the dirt and producing, growing things, building. Right. I mean, well, it's a little different for me. Um, I was in the Marines, so I did. This is all I used to do was just be in the dirt. Uh, the difference in it now is it's like now I, I'm doing something with it versus just playing in it. So I, I would say that's the fun part about it is getting out there on the dirt and having like a purpose of, you know, growing something versus just pounding the pavement, sleeping outside and shooting. Uh, this is a, a completely different ball game. So it's a lot of science behind it. It's a lot of timing behind it. Uh, you don't want to overwater. You want to make sure you're not getting too much sun. You don't want to have not enough sun. Uh, so it's, it's a huge learning process. Uh, but for me, I truly believe in being a student, you know, 365. And that's what I like to do. So I'm, I'm never hesitant to call people and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And they're like, oh, we'll just do it. Well, I need to know what you think about it so I can make a sound decision. Yeah. So, I mean, all those different things, uh, being a student constantly is something that helps, uh, with jumping into do, uh, jumping into different, uh, adventures. So cool. Are there any farmers like that are good sounding boards for you? Yeah. Uh, I reach out to, so my partner Slim, he's, uh, he started off as my dishwasher at the restaurant. Uh, but he's always been a farmer at heart and before that. So I, I lean on him a lot for information and in farming. Uh, there's also another guy by the name of Tim, uh, Timothy Hammond that I, that I reach out to some uh, guys from Lorm, uh, Organomics, Josh Rosa, uh, Rosas. I reach out to, uh, my guy Chase over there at Sweetwater Farms, uh, Planet Four, reach out to them. I mean, I reach out to everybody cool. to get as much information as not, and knowledge as I, as I can because, uh, farming is a creative outlet as well. You can talk to a hundred different farmers and they'll all tell you something different. All of them really? because they all have their own, their own way of, of doing it. Um, but it's always good to have all those different experiences from all those different farmers and then you have to make a sound decision based on how, how well you process their information and how well you process that knowledge. It's no different than anything else in life. You, gotta, you just got to take advice and then apply it in ways that you think are going to be beneficial for you and your project. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at envoymortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. Hey, Johnny, what is Broham Fine Soul Food and Groceries? So Broham Fine Soul Food and Groceries is, is our grocery store chain. 
Um, it's going to be hopefully the world's first uh, 100% self-sustainable grocery store, meaning that everything in the grocery store is is created and, pure, and procured by us. Including what you're growing on the farm. Especially with everything that we're growing on the farm. Uh, we want to be self-sustainable, which means we're using lowering our carbon footprint, uh, using up all of our waste, and still putting out high-quality, tasty products. And essentially everything that we made at Indigo is going to be available in that store. Uh, because- in what form? preserves, condiments, sauces. I mean, that's that's the basis of indigo, right, was uh, soul food, right, uh, neo-soul food. But all of that was made through preserves, as we talked about um, with, sweet potatoes. with the sweet potatoes, right, preserving them. So now we apply that in so many different plethoras of, of platforms that now you have, we have 456 preserve, you know, preserved items that can go on the shelves there. And will it be in the fresh produce as well? Yep, fresh produce will be available as well. And, and where will this be? Uh, so it's, we're definitely going to start off on the northeast side of town, Trinity Garden, Field Forward area. Uh, we do have a few different locations that I'm not going to disclose just yet uh, that we're working on, um, but it's going to be coming here very soon. But the plan is to have multiple locations Pretty early on. Within yeah. Trinity Gardens, kind of really? Certainly, certainly. We, uh, we definitely want to focus on the community and then, of course, start branching out to other parts of the city as well. Because our, the northeast side of Houston is probably one of the most underdeveloped, but there are still several other places that are developed and underdeveloped that don't have quality grocery stores. And this doesn't mean that we have to have H-E-B size complexes, right? Um, Aldi is very successful with floor plans under 3,000 square feet. Very cool. How will you make sure that, because I could see people from Houston who are lucky enough to not live in food deserts wanting to come to this store because it's cool and the food's going to be great and they're going to want to get the fresh produce that you're growing. But your priority is to make sure it really benefits and makes a dent in the food desert problem, right? Correct. How do you balance that? Well, that's what we uh, we want to have things for our grocery store. Our grocery store is going to be very different. Um, not going to display too much of the information on the grocery store oh, so before on, it Johnny. gets out. But I will give you this uh, this one perk. Um, there will be uh, memberships available for the grocery store. Uh, and with memberships come different perks. Uh, also, people that live in the community, there will be things like community cards, right? Meaning that if you live in the zip code in which this store works, because your community card won't work at every other store. It'll only work at the store in which you live in, Right. If your zip code is in that in that area of that uh, of that store, there'll be other community perks separate from membership perks, separate from general public or general population perks that come along with it. So just trying to create different ways in which people can be engaged uh, with the grocery store, because typically grocery stores are places you go in and out of. Right. But what, what I would like to introduce is hospitality in the grocery business. That's smart. Grocery. I mean, I feel like. Maybe you feel the same way, but going to the grocery is one of my favorite things, you know, going there. And so if you, if you were to, it, you know, you come across someone who's really nice that works at the grocery store and that just enhances it. So I, I think that's cool to expand hospitality within groceries. Right. Well, another big part about that when you go in the grocery store is you're a chef. So when you go into the grocery store, it's kind of like, yeah, I like going to the grocery store. You know how many Americans get anxiety going to the grocery store because they don't know what any of the stuff is and they don't know how to use it properly? Good point. You know, and it goes to waste and things like such. So, I mean, like I said, a lot of problems that I was having at Indigo was we would, we would have regulars that would come back to the restaurant, but they weren't applying some of the things that we were talking about. 
Uh, and that's because we're not there to be able to be consistently saying like, hey, grow your own food. Hey, did you grow your own food? Hey, did you do this? Or did you, you know, but having a grocery store will allow us to give us that opportunity. Like, hey, if, you, if you're not going to use all your produce, right, or your produce is getting ready to go bad, bring it back to us and we'll, t- and we'll use it in our sustainability kitchen, right? Why let it go bad? And you don't know what to do with it. Bring it back to bring it back to the grocery store and we'll process it right now. There are other things in there to iron out. But if that produce isn't going to be edible for human consumption in that phase, what are we we master in is preserving and sustainability. We're just going to reprocess it and use it in a different way. Even if it doesn't get eaten in any fashion, it can always go right back into the soil. Did you grow up with the concept of growing your own food? No, um, I did not. I, we did grow some products. Uh, my grandmother did have a few different, you know, fruit trees and things. We did barter a little bit with our neighbors. They used to climb fig trees. I read somewhere. Hell yeah, I used to climb some fig trees. <laughs> Hell yeah, it's a good tree to climb. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's great for the fruit, but the wasp are ridiculous. Really? Hell yeah, they would tear you up with a heartbeat. That's actually how I ended up making that dish. It was titled uh, "A Day in Calamine." I used to go cut grass for my uncle. And uh, we get paid like 25 bucks to cut somebody's grass. But you double down on the money by just climbing their fig trees and taking all their figs. You get $25 <laughs> in cash and figs. That's a win. Yeah, unless you got to go up there and you spend the rest of the day in Calamon lotion because you've been stung by so many different wasps or bit by so many mosquitoes climbing on the trees. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Especially if it's a big fig tree. I love figs, though. I, I used to climb fig tre- My grandmother had a fig tree. and I. Climbed. My parents did, too, yeah. And a meal used to be... Just a bowl of figs with cream. There you go. Nice. There you go. My my daughter calls them fire figs because we used to just put a little sugar and brulee them. And uh, when she got older, she, she's like, she didn't know what, what, how to good. say brulee. She said, can we get the fire figs? I'm like, yeah, we get some fire figs. We are getting close to the end of our time with Johnny Rhodes. We're going to get in a couple more quick questions for you. You may just say, I don't want to answer this question, and that's okay. I'm curious how you feel about where the country is politically. And if you feel like we're going, we've had an election, we've had so much turmoil, but a lot of what you do touches on people's sort of political beliefs and sort of systemic racism and where the country's going and the changes that need to occur. Do you feel like we're in a good place or getting, are things getting better? No, no. I try not to dabble too much in the political realm. I just don't have any, I don't have a strong faith in it. Um, it, I think it takes too much time. I, was, I actually had this conversation with someone right before I came in here. Um, you'll have a problem in your life, and you say we try to solve it with policy, right? And you look up, and it's passed over your lifetime, your kid's lifetime, and sometimes even your grandkids' lifetime. But what's wrong with you solving the problem tomorrow? Not yesterday. You're talking and complaining about it. You might as well just fix it. Start the process. Right. Don't talk. If you don't don't talk to me about it, just to complain about it, talk to me about it, about convincing me to help you fix it. And I think uh, as a people in society, we put way too much. uh, We put way too many eggs in that basket of waiting on policy. Um, And I would love to see more people actively involved in seeing the change that they want to be. You know, not that I'm a perfect human being by any stretch of the imagination, but I think we have to work really hard at being better for each other. Uh, like I said, when we talk about crime, you know, kids aren't breaking into cars to go buy a $200 pair of Jordans. They're going to spend that money in the food line at McDonald's, McDonald's yeah. and Burger King. You know, 
don't turn around and go talk about, well, we need to hire a new police chief because of crime. No, let's get to the base of the issue and talk about the fact of lack of access to food. Um, and it doesn't take a politician or a lawyer or a judge or anybody else to do that. It just takes somebody that just gives a damn. And imagine if 100,000 of us give a damn enough. We could solve world hunger yesterday. Yes. So, I mean, I think those are the, when it comes to politics and all those different realms, I'm very well versed in them. But I just really, I, I have my faith in the people. Good enough. You, when, you, when you announced that Indigo would close, as I mentioned earlier, you had a really beautiful uh, statement that you put, I, I think, on Twitter. And this was part of what you said. You said, thank you for allowing me to become the person I am today because I wasn't this man three years ago. What do you mean by that? I wasn't, uh, I've always been selfless. But uh, sometimes when you, you can you can give up on things. You know, like I said earlier, I almost allowed some contractors to allow me to give up on building Indigo because they said it was impossible. People tell me no every day. And I just say, okay, watch. Can't build a grocery store, can't have a farm, watch. Won't do this, that, and the third, just watch. So um, people believing in the Indigo concept, you know, even though it's a very small amount, um, all the accolades we've, you know, accumulated, those things have given me such a strong sense of, uh, of leadership and such a strong sense of, uh, of no more self-doubt. You know, you have to believe in 100% of what you're talking about. Or if you're not, you're just wasting yours and everybody else's time. And um, having people believe in me and try to continue to push me forward, even when I didn't want to or I didn't think I could, has allowed me to believe that everything in which I'm talking about and creating a space and place for people that live in poverty to have access to high-quality food at all points and times of the day, it really is achievable. Are you excited about the next chapter? Are you anxious? I mean, wh- how do you feel about what's coming next? I am so excited and I am extremely anxious. Uh, <laughs> man, it is, uh, it's a whirlwind of emotions. It's an EQ of highs and lows. And like I said, when you just have people that are, that believe in you and they tell you that, Hey, man, you got your ass kicked yesterday, but I expect you to win today. That helps you like keep going. Cause then you're like, I can do this. This is, this is possible. Uh, and you look at how you've handled situations before and be like, man, I can't believe I made it through that. And it just gets you riled up to know that you can you can make a difference. And as you continue to try to make a difference, whether it impacts one, 100 or one million, it's irrelevant. Because as long as you can touch one, you've done your job. What advice would you have for other people out there who might be thinking, maybe I want to be a chef. I want to start a restaurant in Houston. Whatever it is you want to do. Just sacrifice everything towards that. It doesn't matter what it is. If you want to have a restaurant, uh, you want to have a family, you want to have a farm, you want to have a grocery store, whatever it is you, you want to do, give yourself to it wholeheartedly. The good, the bad, the ugly, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows. Take all of it in and be in it ten toes down. Johnny, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate being on. CityBook and Company is a production of CityBook Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.